Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, Fangoria-nominated special effects artist and podcast person. And I am joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a Frightfest award-winning writer, a visionary director, and I'm issuing a clear invitation to the dance. That is because I'm here to speak about Exorcist 3 with my good friend Dan Martin. But before we do that... I would like to congratulate him on his Fangoria Award nomination. Um, how long can people vote for, Dan? Is, is there still a possibility that... Uh, yes, up until the 31st of January. Perfect. They are um, they're accepting votes, and uh, I'll do my social media at the end, but it's in my pinned tweet, the link for that. So. Perfect. Very uh, exciting. Yeah, really, really exciting and very well-deserved. Uh, Thank you, man. Even that, that, that video of the ball going under the skin... Uh, I, I don't want to say too much because uh, spoilers. And speaking of spoilers, we are going to be spoiling everything in this episode. So go away and watch Exis 3, the original cut, and Legion, uh, the director's cut, because uh, we're going to be talking about the endings of both films because they're very different. But before we do that, Dan, why don't you tell the precious Arrowheads the plot of Exis 3? So, um, a more of a spiritual successor than a narrative successor, or they are they are contextually linked to the first film, and definitely a direct successor to the first film, sort of ignoring the second entirely. It is about uh, Father Karras has turned up in a, an asylum and is requesting atten- the attention of the police officer from the first film, whose name I now can't remember, but it's played by George C. Scott in this movie, and he's amazing. And uh, he is in investigating a series of killings that uh, carry the MO of a serial killer called the Gemini Killer who is thought long dead. And these two things converge uh, in a very, very dark and genuinely brilliant horror film. Yeah, it is, it is a stunning horror film in, in kind of both versions, but we'll get into that. Um, but let's start by talking about the original, about Exorcist 3. Uh, when did you first see it and what were your memories of first seeing it? Um, I don't remember the exact age I was when I saw it, uh, like sort of late teens, early 20s. I think I'd recently seen Changeling, which I've mentioned before. So I was sort of in, a, in love with George C. Scott already by that point. And it, yeah, it absolutely blew me away. I, um, I'd already seen the original, although only on a sort of crappy quality bootleg at this point, the, the first film. But I hadn't seen number two and still haven't seen number two to this date. But yeah, so it, it, it just yeah it blew me away. I absolutely adored it. And I would say that I might, you know, I vacillate on this, but I might prefer it to the, to the first one. Yeah, I, I definitely prefer it to the first one. I've had this argument kind of on Twitter with people and uh, in, in real life with people. Like, uh, a lot of folk can't get their head around the fact that I would prefer uh, a second sequel to the, quote, greatest horror film ever made. Um, but I think Exist 3 has a shell of being the, the greatest horror film ever made. Um, it's kind of astonishing and, and hugely important uh, film to me. Um, I loved it from the first moment I saw it. I think I was probably around kind of 14 or 15, and it was in the wilderness years when everyone thought it was shit. And, you know, it, it wasn't particularly well-reviewed when it first came out, and um, a lot of people actually criticised George C. Scott's performance, which is insane to me because he's so Madness. good. 
Um, and obviously Brad Dourif is even better than that. Like he is next level in this movie. But yeah, I think it's darker, much darker than the original film. Um, despite the fact that Blatty said he didn't want people to think the devil won in the first film, the devil actually wins in Legion um, in his version of Exodus 3 in kind of much the same way John Doe wins in Seven. Yeah, it is a super, super dark, bleak film, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, it really is. And it's, yeah, it's it's weird because in the sort of older interviews with with Blatty, he talks about how it's pure entertainment. And I, don't, I think he doesn't consider it as dark as his, his novel, uh, Legion. Um, but yeah, it really is kind of a gut punch of a film. And it's got that incredible jump scare in it. You'll Everyone who's seen it will know, hopefully everyone who's listening has seen it, uh, will know what I'm talking about with that beautiful sort of zero point perspective Kubrickian shot. Uh, and it's it's sort of two very, very long shots from the same position with a little bit of interaction cut in between them. But it's it's such an amazing jump scare. And I, I've, I've sort of held it up as, I think, probably the best jump scare in modern cinema. Oh, definitely. Um, and and yeah. lots of people um, have kind of tried to match it. and um, not, But not just with the jump scare. Like, I see its influence all over the place. You know, maybe I'm projecting onto these films and kind of... Uh, making them be possessed with the spirit of Exodus 3. But I kind of see it in Paranormal Activity a little bit, which uses the same kind of long takes. Um, Hereditary has a similar colour palette and kind of set pieces. Um, the Conjuring movies are, are kind of basically Exodus rip-offs, but they have little bits from Exodus 3 mixed in there. And especially Seven, uh, which I've already mentioned, but it's basically a, a remake of Legion. Uh, it's another serial killer movie that feels like it's taking place in a hell on earth. And both Seven and Legion have clues that have been written in blood and both end with the killer being shot while they're helpless. Spoilers for Seven. Uh, I really think that <laughs> Andrew Kevin Walker um, was was very influenced by Exorcist 3 and somehow by Legion because they are just so similar. Um, and I even, you know, I homaged it in my uh, first short film, Hell's Garden, which was actually built around paying homage to the Shears scene um, because... Even then, when I made the, the short in, in 2016, Exorcist 3 didn't have the reputation it deserved. Though I feel like that's changing now. People have kind of revisited it because of the recent Blu-ray that included Legion in the States and obviously now with Arrow Video releasing their own sort of version. Um, yeah, I do think that its reputation has changed over time, thank goodness. Yeah, I, to be honest, I kind of missed out on the fact that it was maligned, which, right. as, as I've heard more, you know, I was recommended it by a a friend and I got given a copy of it with little to no context and it blew me away and I watched it you know several times over the years and I got to introduce it to people uh, and I guess looking back on it a lot of people hadn't seen it but then I you know make a habit of showing people films that you know getting excited about showing someone something they haven't seen as, as we all do and so I hadn't talked to a lot of people who had seen it and therefore I hadn't heard that it had been besmirched like that it is astonishing how like you know time can can change attitudes to these things because it's so fucking good well there's uh, there's probably a reason that people hadn't seen it and and that's part of why it didn't have the reputation it deserved it it's partly because of those kind of bad reviews that kind of put people off 
but also people just didn't bother with it so it didn't have that reputation you know um yeah people weren't making up their own minds and i think you're very lucky in that you haven't seen exorcist 2 and i think if you'd have gone sequentially even you might not have bothered with exorcist 3 because exorcist 2 is so shit i mean um, <laughs> brad deriff is very honest uh, on the documentary that's on this disc um about how he feels about exorcist 2 I know we have a mutual friend, Tony, uh, Psychotronic Tony, who absolutely loves Exorcist 2. Um, I think it might be his favourite, though I don't want to speak for him. He, but <laughs> all I'm saying is he fucking loves that film. He, um, he has been yeah. on at me ever since, ever since Jen did the Evolution of Horror live uh, for Exorcist 1. And we sort of, you know, rewatched both versions of that and, and a load of stuff. He's been badgering me to try and to watch Exorcist 2 with him. And I'm not against the idea. I've just always got something better on. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of films in the world. You know, you never know, you might like it. But I guess the point I'm making is, like, it's really interesting that um, Morgan Creek decided that Legion needed the, the exorcist title and it needed an exorcism scene and it needed the tubular bells and all of that stuff because by the time this came out, the exorcist brand was kind of in the gutter. And that's tarnished. That's probably what influenced the the critics in in terms of their reaction to it. Because the weird thing about critics is often um, I've noticed a pattern where, and, you know, it's not like I'm cracking some sort of secret code by noticing this pattern. It's very obvious. Reviewers tend to kind of work as a pack and early people make up their mind on a film and, and people either follow that or, or they decide to be contrarians. But generally, the majority kind of all agree. Um, I'm not sure if they're reading each other's reviews or what. But, yeah, Exorcist 3 certainly had more than its fair share of, of negative crits. And it's fucking annoying because this is a film that should have been uh oscar nominated for performances um george c scott yeah. should have had a, a nomination and i think brad Drift should have won should we should we talk a bit about um brad's performance because it is next level insane he's he's so fucking good there was a little bit of i was sort of drifting on to legion a little bit because he i want to acknowledge that he basically had to do the whole thing twice yeah and the and the the version i had always seen up until recently, he did that in a couple of days, whereas the original version, which is only in Legion and which only exists at the moment in VHS rushes, um, he had weeks to do. Mm. And the fact that he did such an astonishing performance in such a compressed piece of time, I mean, he's always been an amazing actor, yeah. but it, that, that sort of adds an extra level of impressiveness to it all. Yeah, I think, I think it's impressive, but I also think the specific context and circumstance probably would have helped him because there is so much genuine fury in that performance and oh, like yeah. simmering um, resentment and hatred. And um, I'd be pretty pissed off too if I was told, oh, by the way, you know that amazing performance you did, you're going to have to do it again because the studio wants to... Slight, yeah, in a different elements. room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a mildly different room yeah. with, a, with a slightly slightly sillier ending well but also he thought for a while he thought he would have been cut out of the movie entirely didn't he so when he yeah. got given the opportunity to do those the opportunity when he was told he had to do the whole thing again um i guess to some extent there was a little bit of willingness because he had it was better than the alt the alternative which was to just be cut out yeah fuck he's but so good he is i i, I don't uh, you know it doesn't matter which version you're watching uh, i really think that yeah. this is 
uh, for me, I think it's the best performance in all of horror. Um, like the was I raving monologue is just so powerful. It's so fucking good. Like every movement, every sort of, yeah, every twitch of his face, every sort of movement of his eye, it's just so mesmerizing and, and yeah, just well done, Brad DeRiff. Um, we love you. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a, an astonishing switch back and forth between total control yeah. and total madness. And the fact that he's able to just turn on a pinhead for that Oh, God, he's so fucking good. Yeah, he's so good. Uh, and another thing that, that's kind of brilliant in both uh, for me is the editing. There are just so many shots in, in both films, but let's just talk about the original because it's the one that I kind of know best. Um, but yeah, so many shots here that are mood setters um, and they just build and build and build. And I love the way that so much of the violence and horror is left to the imagination of the audience initially. And then we kind of see more and more as it goes on and... Even the transitions are terrifying. It's just so uh, beautifully put together, isn't it? It is. It's, well, it's all gorgeous. It's really beautifully photographed. It's quite. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not monochromatic, but it's not very vibrant as a film. Um, no colors used it, in a really interesting way. Actually, like you talk about that jump scare scene and and the yeah you know the cardigan the red cardigan is kind of the only real color in that shot. Um, or, or yeah, other so, than the. Yeah, the, the policeman's uniform and stuff, but you're kind of your eye is drawn to that red cardigan and obviously It's the only warm colour in the space. Exactly, yeah. And and red, you know, supposedly has psychological effects and so yeah, in fact it definitely does because some people are so phobic of the colour red that even if they see like red ink, they faint. Have you heard about this? Yeah, this condition? yeah, yeah. So and it's um, but yeah. it, it also links it back to the rose imagery. Yeah. Um which is really yeah especially with the the shears you know the shears cutting the head of the rose and and cutting the head of um the nurse with the rose colored cardigan it's it's all there yeah it's i think the thing is that for the most part it's quite a staid film uh, action wise blatty's real power is in just absolute top draw dialogue mm. just astonishingly good dialogue Everyone talks the like everyone delivers the the best possible lines for their character. Yeah. Sometimes you get a great writer who has everyone saying these amazing lines, but they all sound kind of the same. Yeah. Like there's no distinction between the characters, whereas somehow Blatty manages to have absolutely everyone be as sharp as a razor's edge, but also speak like a unique character, speak in their own way. So a lot of the film is people just sitting talking or standing and talking. And then you, but you get it peppered with these moments where he's like, "Oh, by the way, I'm also I'm also a director," and he does these amazing things like that jump scare. Oh, it's yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah, he he's crazy underrated. Um, yeah, speaking of kind of the the script and the dialogue and so on, um, there's so many great monologues in this. Obviously, a lot of the the, the best stuff comes from Brad Dourif, but um, yeah, George C. Scott uh, is Kinderman. Uh, the carp speech is pretty special, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, the whole thing is, like, dialogue-wise, is just absolutely gorgeous. You were talking about there being loads and loads of, uh, loads and loads of monologues, and I'm trying to remember what the name of the, uh, the, the guy who, who's the, 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 the guy at the hospital, the doctor, who's constantly chain-smoking. Oh, and, um, uh, Dr. Temple. Um, but, but his, Dr. The, Temple. The, the actor's name's Scott Wilson, but yeah, Dr. Temple. Scott yeah. Wilson, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, his, his prepared speech 
for George C. Scott is both incredibly well written and incredibly well directed. Yeah. Because it's someone who has essentially learned lines because they have a they have a role, they have to play a part in this thing, but they have to come across as as naturalistic, which for a for a very good actor to appear as someone who is not quite confident enough to deliver a set of lines and to get it performance perfect is especially difficult yeah yeah definitely and yeah just in general it's as as kind of bleak as it is it's also very darkly comic like kinderman and dyer's friendship is is genuinely sweet and and funny um yeah like the line between comedy and tragedy is kind of finely balanced here as it is in all of blatty's work but this is kind of one of my favourite depictions of friendship. I, I actually wish these guys could have had a podcast together, um, Kinderman and Dyer. <laughs> um, but it's not just funny... In Discussing terms... old movies. Exactly, yeah. And that's actually, yeah, that kind of leads me into my next point as well, which is that it's not just funny uh, on the surface in terms of, like, the, the lines and the way they're delivered and all the rest of it. It's also meta. Do you know the connection between this film and The Fly 2? This film and the fly too. Yeah. Uh, so, in I can't remember which film it is. Which of the Exodus films it is now? Someone says, "Do you have a favourite film, Father?" The Fly. Yeah. Is that from the first one? No, that's that's in or this. Is that from this one? Yeah, yeah. That's in this one. That's in this one. So, but so I don't, but I don't know what its connection is to the fly too. So the guy who's who's answering that. So um, it, the the university kind of um, what's the term? The the, the university president who chooses the fly, it's played by Lee Richardson, who is in the fly too. Um, <laughs> so it's another kind of, which, you know, I love the fly too. For me, it's another um, underrated sequel that kind of mixes comedy and heartbreaking tragedy. However, I will never say that the fly too is better than the fly. The fly is perfection. No. Um, but I do love the fly too. But yeah, yeah it's, it's a good film. It's that kind of, you know, that that's early-ish meta comedy. The 90s is obviously known for its meta horror. And Brad dropping the name of Child's Play as well. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the whole thing is brimming over with a love for cinema, essentially. Like, just the, 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 the entirety of cinema is loved through this movie, which is a really gratifying thing to go and watch if you also love cinema. Exactly. And, and so, um, what do you think the significance of It's a Wonderful Life is? Why choose well, that film, do you think? Well, so It's a Wonderful Life is uh, Blatty's favourite film, he says. Mm-hmm. So that's an easy one. Uh, it also plays around with the movement of spirits, uh, of, of souls. Anything beyond that? No, yeah, I, I, I actually don't have any sort of um, theories on this, but it's just uh, such an interesting choice. I mean, it could be that it's a film that pretty much everyone has seen so um it's you don't have to overthink it there's kind of a vicious irony oh here's right here's what i think right okay this has just come to me so it's wonderful life is about uh, an angel helping a man um understand that the world is a better place than he imagined because of his role within it um, and that he has, you know, the ability to to control um, his surroundings, and if he wasn't there, the, the world would be a, a, a poorer place. Um, whereas Exodus Three is basically saying that the world is a poor place, and it doesn't fucking matter what you do within it, um, you're still going to get fucked essentially. 
and it's it's a demon uh, teaching a man or taking a man on that journey, especially in Legion, I guess. So, so should we talk yeah, about yeah, Legion yeah, so and, the, and the endings and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I I really want to rewatch. So I watched uh, Legion a couple of days ago, and mm. I rewatched it with the uh, fantastic audio commentary that I believe Arrow had done, given that yeah. it's um, Mark and and Kim. Uh, and yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I'm I'm really really hoping it's going to be one of these things where you know in a few years time they find the the footage and we can see a, a like a pristine version because it's it's one of those things uh, like we were talking about with the Cabal cut of Nightbreed, yeah, where. I, I think it has a good chance of being my favourite version, but I can also see how it'd be a very difficult sell for someone who hasn't seen the film before to say, oh, yeah, you're going to watch this great film, but just so you know, it's going to drop into VHS quality every now and then, particularly yeah. for the big end scenes, which is a real shame. I, th- I think I prefer... I, well, I definitely prefer the ending of this version. That's Now, now that's interesting. Why why do you prefer this, this um, ending? Um, so there's it. Uh, it reverberates with the way that number one ended, whereas the first one. And bear in mind, I haven't seen Exorcist two, but the original ending of this reverberated very slightly with the ending of Exorcist two, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're both. The thing is, Blatty directed both of them, so it's not like he had it taken away from him entirely. No, he still got to direct it. It's still an amazing film. It's still the film I loved. Yeah. Um, and I'm not doing what we were complaining about everyone doing on the Nightbreed disc, which is sort of shitting on the version that we saw and fell in love with in our youth. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, at, at, you know, and as I said a number of times on our end of year episode, I, I need a bit of distance between seeing something that has that kind of effect on me and really understanding how much I love it, which again feeds, I think, back probably into what you were saying about um, journalists, because journalists have to get that their first impression out there so quickly that these ideas don't really have time to just stay. So it may be that it it doesn't sit with me as well long term. But no, I just really really liked it. I liked that uh, it's Karras in the cell the entire time, rather than it being someone who doesn't look like Karras, because that's more head fucky for for the cop. Uh, I, I like the fact that. At the ending, he's like, I, I can't fight this. I can't do anything about it. There's only one thing I can do, and I can I can become the bad guy mm. and just and just fucking kill him. And he so he's sacrificing himself in similar ways to his you know, his best friend. <laughs> I know it's not his is it his best friend or the other priest? No, it's his best friend. Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. The, the, the impossible friendship, yeah. Um the way his best friend sacrificed himself at the end of the first one by, you know pulling Pazuzu into himself, throwing himself out of the window. He kills himself to to save this. This guy's going to get done for murder, for shooting a restraint, you know, a straight-jacketed man three times. So he, you know, he he banishes this this uh, this evil, but ends up but will be a bad guy in the eyes of society. Yeah. I love a I, I love a bittersweet ending. I love a I, I love a, a, a doing the right thing and it fucking you over ending. Yeah, I mean, I, I I love Legion. Don't get me wrong. I, I, my heart is still with the original. For me, um, I find this ending a little bit of an anticlimax. Um, and if it had been the only version, I mean, it's impossible to say. Like, um, kind of what I was talking about earlier with the, with the kind of reviewers is it's impossible to review stuff in a complete void. And those early people who um, turned their noses up at this film were probably influenced by the reaction um, to Exorcist 2 and um, 
you know, how kind of bad that film was. Um, and certainly, you know, back then it was kind of um, opinions tended to be uniform, but it's, it's even more the case now where reviews kind of, the first reviews that go up online, you kind of know that it's almost like the spirit of that critic is, is infecting everyone that kind of reads the reviews and, um, and then kind of mimics their opinion. Uh, you would think that in this day and age there would be a much more wider spread of opinions and takes on films, but I often see the same stuff being repeated over and over again. Um, when I review, I try to not read... I mean, I don't read anything other than my own take on it. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's tricky. It's hard to see uh, Legion in a void because I am so in love with the original cut, and I think there's kind of... Whether it was... Uh, insisted upon by the studio or not I do think that um, there's so much spectacular stuff in, in the ending of Exorcist 3 and like I say Legion is a tiny bit of an anticlimax um, but your take on it has infected me and you know I can see it through your eyes and, and, and you're right there is some nice thematic stuff in there um, but either way it's pretty fucking bleak yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. I, I think I'll go back to I'll go back to Legion to watch it again for myself. I think I will continue to show people the theatrical cut yeah. when I want to show them Exodus Three. Yeah. It is still an astonishingly good film. Yeah, I yeah, I just I just like a slightly more downplayed ending. And I get what you I get what you mean about it being a little bit of an anticlimax because you don't have the you know the cell falling apart and the face being ripped off and all that stuff. Yeah, but, but also I quite like. That that sort of like it you don't even see the last gunshot it cuts to the sun and you just hear it it's you know he's deliberately kind of cutting you off at the end he's saying look this doesn't but also I think it doesn't really end like you know the the idea is that there are always going to be these gateways into people these you know whether it's it's by taking over catatonic people or or sneaking into the soul of a, the body of a recently dead person that this kind of thing's going to continue and yeah maybe maybe he stopped this one instance of it but the fact that this is the second film in the canon the third film in the franchise and and he has to do such a huge sacrifice to finish to stop that one iteration it's just going to come back it's so bleak yeah and and actually that kind of um there's one more topic i'd like to discuss before we move on to recommendations yeah, yeah. but um what you're saying kind of reminds me of uh one of the things i've always loved about the film is how anti-racist it is um, and how racism is kind of uh, pervasive evil in this world. Um, it's quite a few mentions of racism. And, yeah, it's, it's... I don't think anyone could argue the fact that racism is evil. Um, it's as close to evil as, as we have on this earth. There are no good racists. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's kind of thematically interesting that... This is a world in which people are, are possessed by uh, the spirit of racism, uh, a divisive and, um, yeah, Some of the cops evil. at the beginning are, are racist as well, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. There's, a, there's an altercation between uh, Scott and, and the other cops. Exactly, and, and, then, and then he goes home and, and there's the conversation about um, Jewish people with, with, um, with his wife and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, there's, there's a few bits and pieces dotted around and, you know, the first victim is, is black and, yeah, I, I, I think that's quite... A and the, 
rich. And the Christ head is in minstrel makeup. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's a rich thread in the film. Um, uh, but yeah, should we should we move on to recommendations? Yes. Yeah. Let's ba- go on to recommendations. Uh, I go first. Go on. Um, so my uh, first recommendation is a uh, black and white Italian movie from 1963 called Il Dimoni or the Demon. Uh, directed by uh, Brunello Rondi, who was m- more famous as a writer, did a, did uh, wrote La Dolce Vita, among others, and it's a really interesting. Well, it's sort of, it's two things. First of all, it's sort of an exorcism movie, and you can either see its influence on Blatty very, very heavily across both books, more the first one, but both books, or because it does start with a thing at the front saying it's a true story obviously not true true but you know based on things people believed it's possible that in his very thorough research because it comes across early that Blatty is if you if you see any interviews with him it comes into uh, becomes very apparent that he likes to do a lot of reading a lot of research for his for his stuff um that it's possible that he has drawn from similar sources um the most notable visual comparison being the spider walk um, which is present in Il Dimoni. But it, it's essentially a sort of a, a tour of the arcana of mid-20th century Catholicism in southern rural Italy. And it's, a, and it's about how superstition and, and those kind of things can take over someone so much. But when they lose hope, that they put all their faith into superstition, whether that's uh, sort of occultist superstition or religious superstition. Um, and so through the movie, we see a number of sort of ceremonies, both from this woman who's been driven mad by uh, losing the love of her life, who is not super explicit, slept with her and then abandoned her, but that definitely seemed, definitely the way I read it, and who starts like like the movie starts with her pricking her breast with a pin catching the blood on some cloth cutting her hair wrapping the hair in the cloth burning it turning catching the ash putting it in a horn uh for a spell she's going to do and all of the local villagers think she's a nutcase and uh and start saying she's a witch she's a witch and eventually when she gets asked there's a there's a scene where all of the villagers all of these catholic villagers carry heavy rocks up to a square at the top of the town which is all in hills uh, while being flogged uh, and they're told that they have passed their sins into these rocks and they should throw them down into the courtyard and uh, and shout out their sins as a form of confession and uh, and the first one was like I stole a chicken uh, and then the second guy's like my wife died 10 years ago my daughter's 16 I think of her as a woman I sneak into her room at night and watch her naked and then the third guy's like I shot my steps my stepson out of the house and he starved to death and she's like, I, I may have talked to a demon. And they're all like, she's the bad one. Um, but through the movie, you see all these, you see a wedding, you see a funeral, you see an exorcism. It's sort of like a tour of all these different, like traditional Catholic rites. But they all seem just as mad as like burning your hair in some cloth and uh, to try and win back the guy that you, you love. It's, oh, it's just fucking great. Yeah, you'll love it. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. That, that's Sorry, nice. that was much longer than I expected. That's all right. That's fine. Um, no. Uh, as long as you didn't spoil it too much. Uh, no. 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 Yeah. Good. My first recommendation uh, for the Exorcist Three is a film called Hardcore. 
which is a Paul Schrader movie. I've talked about Amazing. it on the podcast in the past. Um, I'm sure I have, but I can't not recommend this for this film because it's another brilliant George C. Scott performance, just fucking unreal. As good as Brad Dourif is in Exorcist 3, George C. Scott is that good in hardcore. And it's another supremely dark movie. Uh, it's a great companion piece to Taxi Driver. Any Taxi Driver fans out there, there are definitely more people that have seen Taxi Driver than have seen Hardcore. And, and all of these films are about spiritual desolation in a very interesting way. There's a beautiful Blu-ray release by Indicator of Hardcore. And if you don't have it in your collection, you should. And it can nestle right next to Exist 3 as long as you aren't doing things in alphabetical order. Um, <laughs> in George C. Scott order. Yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah, uh, we, uh, hardcore. We, we actually, yeah, we watched it directly back to back with uh, Legion the other day in the house. Oh, did you? Uh, oh, well. It was, yeah, I, I long listed it, but I, I assumed it would be uh, it would be one of yours. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, it's, oh God, it's so good. Do you have the indicator Blu-ray? I do, yes, yeah. It's so good, so good. Yeah, um, they've done a lovely job with it. But yeah, what is next for you from the Exodus 3? Uh, so it is a referential uh, recommendation rather than a thematic recommendation. So if you like, if you only like films like Exorcist 3, you might not like this movie. But if you like film in general and you like to go a little broader with your stuff, then then it's one for you. It's a, it's a movie that is a poster of which is in the background of the, uh, the movie theatre that the, the two leads go to in the movie. It's a movie called Here Comes Mr. Jordan. I had not seen it before. It's on Amazon Prime. Not not Prime, you know, you have to rent it. But but it's a, it's an absolute, it's it's based on the same play as Heaven Can Wait, which was called Heaven Can Wait. Uh, it's about a boxer who dies and is um, reallocated a new body. His soul is slipped in at the moment of death to uh, to another body. And it's essentially the same conceit as... Exodus 3, but it's a really lovely uh, comedy. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that uh, was a kind of a point of interest in both commentaries, wasn't it, uh, on this yes. disc? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, just one note on the Mark Commode and Kim Newman commentary, which is very good. I do wish that Mark Commode had talked a little bit less and Kim Newman had talked a little bit more because every time Kim spoke, I loved what he said. And Mark, you know, he does know a lot about The Exorcist. Anyway, my second recommendation based on The Exorcist 3 uh, is an amazing film called Wise Blood. Now, uh, it's shot by Jerry Fisher, uh, who also shot Exorcist 3, uh, and it features another astonishing performance by Brad DeRiff. So there are kind of parallels there. Uh, directed by John Huston, it's similarly tonally eccentric, uh, it's about a crazed preacher who wants to establish a new religion, the church without Christ. Um, and yeah, it's similarly funny and sad and brilliantly performed. So if you haven't seen Wise Blood... Uh, Which it, I it's, it, Oh, God, you are, of all the people in the world, Dan, you would absolutely love Wise Blood. It is exactly your, your kind of... Um, yeah, I think it, it parallels with your outlook on life a little bit. So um, do definitely check that one out. And a kind of sub-clause recommendation. Uh, there's a band called Wise Blood, uh, but she spells it W-E-Y-E-S. It's a singer-songwriter who goes by Wise Blood. 
uh, and her album, which I can't remember the title of <laughs> off the top of my head from last year. I was not prepared to do this subclause recommendation, but it just struck me that they, they're the same. Her album it is about film and, and movies, uh, as well as being about lots of other things. And it is probably my favourite album of 2019, even though I can't remember the title of it. And we're not doing things about 2019 anymore because it's 2020. But uh, <laughs> I had a very long journey last night, uh, Dan. I'm very tired. But That's um, all right, man. That's all right. Yeah, it's, I'm, uh, I'm literally it's rambling. <laughs> It's all good. It's all good. I have a I have a second a sort of tertiary sub recommendation. What did you call it? Uh, like a, a, sub? a sub clause recommendation. A sub clause. Yeah, yeah, I've got a sub clause recommendation as well. Right. I um I played through the Exorcist Legion VR um, over the last few days. Excellent. Which is really good. <laughs> it's um I mean it's you know still comparatively early days for VR I guess but but it's um it's got a couple of moments that are genuinely fucking chilling and while the writing on average doesn't come close to Blatty's quality of writing there are a couple of lines especially towards the end when you're talking to a particular character who you will know from the franchise uh, or when they're talking to you rather that are chilling and it also plays with i think it's called occlusional geometry really well i you're walking around impossible corridors corridors that would cross over but because it's a virtual space they can do that and it's really upsetting and disorienting it's really good excellent i'm glad we both had subclause recommendations maybe we'll do that more often and uh, i just quickly checked the title of that album it's called titanic rising and in checking it i have found out that she was named She's named the project after Flannery O'Connor's 1952 novel, Wise Blood, which is also what the film's based on. So there is a connection there. I do love it when that happens. Right, shall we move on to recommendations from the past couple of weeks? Yes. Right, what have you been watching, Dan? Uh, so Tony Clark and I, uh, Psychotronic Tony, friend of the podcast, uh, and I watched The Lolly Madonna War, a.k.a. Lolly Madonna Triple X, from 1973, it's directed by Richard C. Serafian, who did Vanishing Point. Um, it's a very peculiar movie. It, it, we knew it was based on a book. The woman who wrote the novel adapted the screenplay. And we just assumed it was like a huge tome because it's so dense what goes on. Um, but it's an ensemble cast uh, featuring a very young Jeff Bridges, a young Gary Busey, Randy Quaid's in it. Um, but it's these two uh, neighbouring families, the Flowers and the Gutshaws, who, given a photo montage in the opening credits, obviously used to get on very well, uh, and that has, for some reason or another, started to fall apart. And the movie starts with uh, an ever, like, sort of, in media res, prank war between the sons of the two families, quite extended families. Um, basically, one has planted a postcard in their own mailbox they knew the others would read, saying that an intended bride for one of the sons is going to be arriving at the local bus station in town. And they've put that there so that the other guys will go to sort of, like, spy, and they can go and smash up their moonshine still and steal one of their pigs. What they don't realise is that a, a young woman who is totally unrelated to the rest of them uh, will be, by coincidence, getting off the bus at that time. And that in a, 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 a moment of terrible decision-making, that Jeff Bridges and his family will kidnap her. And it everything just slowly degrades. There's a fantastic line towards the end of the film where one of the brothers is angrily loading a gun 
and uh, and says an eye for an eye and Gary Busey who's like the young sensible one in this who, who could have thought uh, Gary Busey's like don't start with that bible shit and that's kind of the like they're all so proud and so convinced that they're in the right that they just let this thing tear everything apart and it's a really good really depressing film excellent well uh, and how can people get a hold of that if they would like to watch it because I'd like to watch that one so it was on uh, YouTube Pay, right? But it is not anymore. Ah. So I'm assuming it will turn up on another uh, like VOD service, right. In the near future, and I will mention it again when it does. Great. Well, for my first recommendation, now I know I uh, complained a little bit about how homogenous critics can be. And, you know, I'm sorry to all my, my lovely friends who are critics. Uh, you are all um, precious individuals. However, sometimes the, the homogenous nature of criticism can come together to produce a delight. And uh, I kind of... Uh, I didn't get around to watching this one when it was out, but everyone agreed on it, and what they kind of said about it made me think that it would make a good Christmas present for my sister... Uh, and my watching over the past week or so has been um, kind of restricted to what I can actually watch with my family. Uh, so we all sat down together to watch Booksmart, which is a film that I had kind of missed on release. I'm sure you've seen it, Dan. Have you seen it's really Booksmart? good, isn't it? Yeah, it's excellent. Um, <laughs> it's so good. It was yeah. my long list for the year. Oh, yeah, no, it I think my long list it, for the year. It, it would have been on my also rounds for sure if I'd have seen it in time. Yeah, it's just... People listening to this podcast don't need me to tell them what it's about. You, you know what it's about. But if, like me, you've yet to see it, do prioritise it because it's a really, really fun film with really, really, really great performances at the heart. Yeah, of it. really good. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, you'll get nothing obscure from me this week. But my first recommendation is Booksmart. Dan, what's next for you? Uh, it's another one I watched with Tony. This so one it's another also, weird one. Hooray. <laughs> it's another weird one. It's another one that's on YouTube, although this is just on YouTube. It's not YouTube pay. It's a 1958 Japanese picture by uh, Yasuzu Masamura, who did Blind Beast. Um, it's called Giants and Toys. It is nothing like Blind Beast. Um, it kind of feels like, uh, like a sort of corporate world version of My Fair Lady, directed by Billy Wilder if he was Japanese. Sounds um, incredible. Yeah, it is astonishing. It's sort of like a light, fluffy Japanese comedy set in the world of corporate candy makers. And they're like three rival companies are fighting to, to like take over the market of, of caramels. And so one of the companies decides that they will create a star because that will be how they have someone who they can control enough to do the marketing that they want. And so they settle on this, this sort of like homely girl with rotten teeth because that's a thing that's okay in 1950s candy <laughs> adverts in Japan, apparently. Um, and they set about uh, the campaign with her. And it's about, yeah, like her rise to stardom and how, how it affects her as a person. But then also like a lot of minutiae about the marketing and ups and downs of the corporate candy manufacturer world it's really good excellent i will definitely give that a watch that sounds great uh my next recommendation again please if you're listening to this uh and you're currently planning what to say at my funeral uh please don't stand up at the front and say now one of the films sam was most passionate about was a documentary from 2009 called official rejection because uh like i say i haven't watched as much as i would like to over the past few days 
Um, uh, but one of the films I've watched is Official Rejection, and it's all right. It's pretty good. It's a fun documentary <laughs> about the politics of film festivals. Uh, it's not perfect. The documentarians are a little bit unlikable, but there are great moments mixed in there, and it kind of builds to a climax involving how a director's film is being shown or, or, or not being shown at a film festival that will just have you on the edge of your seat. The ending is really quite cringeworthy, um, so brace yourself for that. But it's in an interesting way, not in a bad way. So yeah, uh, official rejection. While it's not the greatest film uh, I've ever seen, it is a film I've seen in the past couple of weeks. So um, yeah, there we go. Uh, shall we go on to extra features? Extra features? Extra features. Uh, no extra features unless Dan has a surprise. I do not have a surprise. Then in that case, let us do our social media business. Dan, where can people find you? Uh, Instagram and Twitter. I am at 13fingerfx. Uh, if you do want to do the votey thing, you can search for Fangoria Chainsaw Awards or it's on the Cine State site. Uh, like I said before, I'll have a pinned tweet on my account that has a link to that. Um, I'm nominated for uh, Best Makeup Effects, but the film I did, Girl on the Third Floor, is uh, nominated for Best Debut as well. And then also in Fabric, which I did, is nominated for Best uh, Limited Release Picture as well. So do me a favour, people. Thank you. <laughs> but fuck those films. Make sure you vote for Dan. Do not be distracted by, oh, yeah, in Fabric, that's the film that Dan was involved in. No, vote for the makeup. 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 <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Um, I yes, want Sam to have first. a Fangoria Award, for goodness sake. Um, that would be incredible. Yeah, great. Uh, I am not nominated for anything currently, but should you want to buy a ticket to the Starburst International Film Festival, which happens on March the 13th and March the 14th in Manchester, um, it hasn't been announced when my film, A Little More Flesh, is going to be playing, but it will be playing there. So if you get yourself a ticket... I think maybe there's still some um, cheaper ones available, but uh, I would love to see you there and meet you there and talk to you. And I promise I'll be in a better mood then than I am right now. I am so very tired. Dan, never, You've been quite chipper, despite the tiredness. Never travel from Kent to Scotland um, over <laughs> Christmas period. It's a terrible idea. But yeah, uh, uh, I will be at Starburst and so will my film, so I would love to see you there. Right, I'm not going to give my social media information. People know what that is. And instead, I'm going to say thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional next time. Oh, yeah. All right, see you next right. time. When it will be, what will it be next time? Oh, oh boy. God, we were going to do Old Boy, weren't we? Old Boy, yeah. So, yeah, let's so do Old Boy. Watch Old Boy and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. All right, cool. Bye.